0: This is a Triple J podcast. (laughs) Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. So many of you have hated online learning. You tell us all the time. But there are heaps of people who not only love it, but they rely on it. And a lot of them are in really isolated parts of the country, and they're starting to find that some unis are telling them they need to get back to campus. So is this push to wind back the COVID era, remote learning, going to lock a lot of people out of studies? We're going to be exploring this idea a bit later. If you are a person who's been told you need to get back to campus to finish your degree, you want to listen to this. Also, we're going to have an update on what's happening in Gaza. A lot's gone down there over the past day. First though, hack.
1: We will set the strictest possible conditions for you. If you do not follow them, you will end up back in jail.
0: On Triple J. Remember last week we told you about a massive court decision on immigration detention? The High Court ruled Australia couldn't detain people indefinitely. And because of that decision, more than 80 people have been released from detention. Now, some of those people are convicted criminals and the government's been flat out trying to figure out what to do about it. They've been debating new emergency powers in Parliament that they say are going to make the community safer, like using ankle bracelets and curfews to monitor this group of people. But human rights advocates are slamming this. They're saying it's going to have massive impacts on people's freedom. Shalala Midor explains.
2: The government was seriously caught on the fly when the High Court last week decided it could no longer keep a group of people in immigration detention indefinitely. Here's Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill speaking to the media this morning.
3: The
1: implications of the High Court's decision has required by law the Australian government to release a cohort of people from immigration detention. The Commonwealth government did
2: not want to do this. That decision has meant the release of 84 people from indefinite immigration detention so far. If I had any legal power to do it, I would keep every one of those people in detention. You may be asking, why can't we just send them home? Because under international law, we can't deport people who face real harm in their home countries. People like persecuted minorities or opposition political parties, for example. And some people don't have a home to go back to because they're stateless. So the solution has been to leave them in immigration detention with no end in sight. Australians are less safe because these people are walking amongst us now. Among those 84 people are murderers, rapists and people who've committed child sex offences. That's opened the government up to days of attack by opposition leader Peter Dutton and his team.
4: And the Prime Minister has failed the single most important test of the leader of our nation. That is to keep people safe.
2: So today the government introduced emergency laws to create a new visa type solely for this group of people. The visa would force all those people to wear ankle bracelet monitors and stick to curfews. Immigration Minister Andrew Giles says people who've been released from detention will need approval from the government for a range of things, like...
4: Approval before
1: doing any work with vulnerable people. This includes work with children. Occupations that involve the use of or access to chemicals of security concern, occupations in the aviation or maritime industries, and occupations in facilities that handle security sensitive biological agents.
2: They'd also have to let the government know if they took out a loan or joined a club or organisation. If they fail to do those things, they face the prospect of jail time.
1: Each offence carries a maximum penalty of five years and equivalent penalty units to address serious and repeated cases of non-compliance.
2: Minister O'Neill says it's time for Peter Dutton to put his money where his mouth is and support the government's new laws.
1: Now, I'd say again to the Leader of the Opposition, you can pretend to be a tough guy all you like,
2: but words don't make our country safer, good wars do. Shadow Home Affairs Minister James Patterson says the laws don't go far enough.
0: Ankle bracelets and curfews mean that during the day these people will be out in the community. They can go to work, they can go to school, they can go to shopping
1: centres,
4: they can go to sporting uh, centres, they can go all in the community. And some of them frankly should not be there. They pose too high a risk to the community.
2: Though it's unclear how the opposition wants to resume detaining this group seeing as the high court ruled against just that.
4: You never Order, Member McEwen will cease rejecting.
2: Despite all the political point scoring, in the end the legislation was waved through the House of Reps. Both Labor and the Coalition supported it. It's now being debated in the Senate, where it will pass because it has the support of both major parties before it can officially become law.
5: Hack on Triple J.
0: Shalala Madora with that update. I want to find out now what human rights lawyers think about this. We've got Senmati Verma with us, and Senmati is the acting legal director at the Human Rights Law Centre. Senmati, welcome to Hack. Thanks very much. What do you think of this government plan for ankle bracelets, curfews for those released from immigration detention?
5: Look, I I think it started off as a pretty sad and sorry day um, in Australia and it's gotten worse and worse. So just taking a step back for a second, um, a a week ago the High Court made what on one view was quite a modest um, ruling. It it found that um, the Australian government doesn't have the power to lock people up forever, um, and that's a pretty modest, uh, on, on one view, that's a pretty modest finding. And since that time, around 84 people have been released. And just to be perfectly clear, some, but not all of them, um, have served criminal sentences. And yet they've done their time. They're not being released from, from prison. Um, they're being released from immigration detention where they were simply because they didn't have a visa. To subject people in a blanket way to conditions of this nature is to replicate a form of detention in the community, we would say.
0: Is it legal for the government to bring in new rules after people have been released? Like, do you expect there to be legal challenges to this?
5: Yeah, look, I I think that part of what... The answer to that is a little bit technical. Um, The short point is yes. Um, Yes, I expect there to be legal challenges. Um, But part of what the government is doing here is having Parliament exercise a regulation-making power. Um, Now, Parliament must do that in a way that's, um, you know, reasonable and proportionate, you can have a really serious debate um, about whether some of these conditions um, are reasonable, are proportionate. Um, Even looking at some of the, there's ongoing debate and you know, things are moving so fast that it's been a few minutes since I um, checked in with where the debate is is at at the moment. But even going back and looking at some of the mandatory conditions that were proposed by the government, just at the start of the day, they are just absurd. Um, A requirement to seek the minister's permission before being in contact with a vulnerable person. Do you have to have ministerial permission to be in contact with your child? Um, And these might seem like facile questions until we realise that people are being exposed to jail terms for breach. So this is all just a a spectacle that's gotten far out of control.
0: What the government is saying is that they need to ensure the community is safe and that people are going to be concerned if there are those with serious criminal histories. And, you know, we heard there are people convicted of murder, several sex offenders being released into the community. What do you think could be done to minimise uh, the risk to the community, uh, or is there anything that you think needs to be done?
5: The the critical point here, uh, I think we need to remember two things. Uh, Firstly, I think we need to remember how it is that this debate about community safety has been confected by the opposition, acquiesced in by the government, and enabled, I think, if I may say, um, present company excluded by a willing media. Um, What I think we need to remember here is that some of these people, not all again who have been convicted of crimes in the past, have served their time, and we have to wake up every single day. People are being released from prison at the end of their sentences into the community. We do not subject Australian citizens to routine, ongoing, post-sentence monitoring, a type of pre-crime monitoring. That's not the way that we we work. It's not the way that we're supposed to work. Why make a distinction for people based on their visa status alone?
0: We've got a lot of messages coming through on the text line, people agreeing with what you've just said there, San Mati. Someone's saying these people are no more dangerous than citizens who have served their time and are back in their community. Another person says, when I first heard this stuff, I was like, yeah, it makes sense. Then after thinking about it, it feels more invasive than how we'd keep uh, people who committed criminal offences here in Australia. Why not just uh, give them jail time here instead of this whole rigmarole is what Cameron has said. Uh, Have you been able to speak to any of those released uh, about what they think of this, San Marti?
5: I think I've been able to speak with some of the people released. Some of the people are not in um, a wonderful condition. You can imagine um, having been released after, just to be very clear, a period of unlawful detention. So some people have been um, in detention for up to a decade. That's a very, very long time to be deprived of your liberty. To then be subject to a massive public smear campaign, um, you know, about your character, about your ability to become part of the community again, is a very painful position to be in. And people admitted. People also fear being re-detained. So people fear being taken back into detention. So what confronts them is an invidious division. Um, you know, they've got they're facing this massive public campaign, a fear of being re-detained. Even though, as lawyers, I suppose we know that's not possible. It's impossible to convey that to somebody, and then on the other hand, forms of basically detention that are replicated in the community. So think it is a dark day, as I said.
0: What's your biggest concern about uh, what could happen from here?
5: My biggest concern is, look, it's, it's all a concern. It's really difficult to pull apart this ball of wool. Um, my broad overarching concern, if, if you would ask me, is how quickly it is that the community can be convinced of the inherent criminality um, of migrants and refugees um, at, as, as a migrant. That, that is something that deeply concerns me, how quickly people can, can be convinced to that point without thinking it, it through in any sensible or, or meaningful way and how quickly we come to accept as a community that migrants and refugees deserve punishment. And just to be clear, these conditions are going to last for the duration of the visas people are granted, that is for the duration of their lives. So I would say at a high level, that is what concerns me
0: most. Well, look, we do appreciate your insight into this. Senmati Verma from the Human Rights Law Centre, thank you very much for coming on Hack.
5: Thanks for your
0: time. Hack Questions have been raised about the authenticity of Israeli military videos. On Triple J. Yeah, we're going to check in on Gaza now, and a fair bit has happened over the past day. Israel has been slammed for a raid on a major hospital in Gaza, but the Israeli army claims it's found weapons there belonging to Hamas. Now, under the rules of war, hospitals can't be attacked, but they can lose that protection if they're being used to commit acts that are considered harmful to the enemy. So there are a lot of claims being made by both sides and a lot of stuff that's still unverified. So what do we know? Joe Lauder explains.
1: Lieutenant
4: Colonel Jonathan
3: from the IDF here. I am in the Shifa hospital, as you can see from the sign. The Israeli military raided the al-Shifa hospital overnight, where hundreds of civilians have been sheltering alongside the patients and hospital workers. A doctor from the Gazan Health Ministry said the soldiers moved from room to room and interrogated people.
4: Shifa hospital is still besieged the occupation soldiers are still in the ground floor and the bedroom floor. They are searching employees, civilians, even the injured and the patients.
3: After the raid, the Israeli Defence Force released a seven-minute video with one of their senior commanders at the hospital. In it, they claimed that they found military equipment, including what looks like about eight guns at the hospital. The ABC can't verify these claims.
4: There is an AK-47... There are cartridges, am- ammo, uh, there are grenades in here, of course, uniforms and all of that. this was hidden very conveniently, secretly, behind the MRI machine.
3: Hamas claims that the Israeli military planted the weapons at the hospital and there aren't any journalists there to verify anything. In the video, one of the bits of evidence that's used is that the security cameras have been covered up.
4: We tried to uncover the cameras, but all of the cameras have been obstructed. You can see there's black uh, tape covering it.
3: The military leader also claims that they found three grab bags with a grenade, some ammunition and a vest.
4: Grab and go. ...of a Hamas
3: combatant ...and a laptop that he says already has incriminating evidence on it. The ABC's Global Affairs editor, John Lyons, has been analysing the video.
4: When you see the video, you realise it's pretty thin. They've found a laptop which appears to be very important intelligence and then another computer which the IDF spokesman says already provides a lot of incriminating evidence. Now that's very quick to decide it's incriminating evidence.
3: Israel's been claiming that Hamas was operating in a network of tunnels under the hospital. That's why they justified going into the hospital, but they haven't released any evidence of that. It's been reported that the IDF troops have now left the building after also delivering some medical supplies. Israel's been heavily criticised for the raid, like from the head of the World Health Organisation.
4: Israel's military incursion into Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City is totally unacceptable. Hospitals are not battlegrounds. We're extremely worried for the safety of staff and patients.
3: Protecting them is paramount. And the UN's emergency relief chief.
4: Our concern is for the patients of a hospital that doesn't function. I understand the Israelis, concern for trying to find the leadership of Hamas. That's not our problem.
3: Across the Gaza Strip, the situation remains dire. But there's been the first delivery of fuel in over a month that's hoped to help. A spokesperson for the World Food Programme says it's been causing issues with the food supply in Gaza.
6: All of Gaza's 130 bakeries have basically closed their doors because of the severe shortage of fuel. It's either you don't have clean water to bake the bread or there is no fuel or the bakeries
3: have sustained damages. So this is the combination that has made now bread a very rare commodity, a luxury. Meanwhile, the UN Security Council has voted in favour of calling for urgent and extended humanitarian pauses, but it doesn't mention a ceasefire. The United States, the United Kingdom and Russia abstained from voting, but the Israeli ambassador to the UN has called the motion, quote, disconnected from reality and meaningless. Back home, a group of healthcare workers have delivered a petition to Parliament calling for the government to support a ceasefire. They were joined by the Greens and two Labor backbenchers.
6: The people of Australia do not accept this as a standard. And in the name of democracy, we expect that our elected representatives
2: listen to us. You're listening to Hack on Triple J
0: joe lauder with that update and if you do want to learn more about what's happening in gaza uh, including stuff that has been verified you can check out the abc news website
1: Hack. Hey. the infrastructure was built up to assist us through our studies it just seems bizarre that they've wanted to tear it
0: down on triple I i don't think it's controversial to say online learning hasn't been a hit for everyone Actually, some of you have been telling us for a long time it's made your studies harder. Maybe it's forced you to drop out altogether. You don't think you're getting your money's worth. It's hard to concentrate. Maybe you're not getting the help that you used to get face to face. Is it here to stay or is it going to be eventually phased out? There are some people, though, that are worried about online learning going for people who would otherwise struggle to go to uni in regional, rural, remote areas, it's been a lifesaver, giving them opportunities that would have been really difficult before, maybe because moving to a city is too expensive or they've got to be at home to help out on the family farm. They just need to work. Is this you? Have you been told that your course is going back to face-to-face learning and you're worried about it? It's going to have a real impact on how you're studying. Message in 0439 Well, Angel Parsons has been looking into it and talking to some students who are worried that their remote learning opportunities are going to disappear.
7: Yeah, doing uni online might have its fair share of cons, but in Grace McDonald's case, it's pretty much all pros.
1: I feel so much more comfortable learning in my own environment at home where I'm supported by my family, where I'm not isolated away.
7: Being able to study while still living and working on her family's cane farm in the Whitsundays has made all the difference. But this month, Grace and the other agribusiness students at the University of Queensland say they got some pretty stressful news.
1: A couple of days before our final exams for the semester, uh, we received an email. Dear Grace, we are writing to inform you about the transition back to in-person course offerings in 2024. Due to the COVID pandemic... I think it's been quite um, a shock to a lot of people if they like me, are currently working and studying externally, have to pack up within the next three months, lose their jobs, say goodbye to their families, try and find somewhere to live is just such a daunting prospect.
7: Grace is doing a dual degree in agribusiness and ag sciences. She actually started in person in 2020, but switched to remote learning when COVID hit. And now she's thriving, like works on the farm, works for a local ag business and has helped run a young farmer's group. If she passes her exams, she'll graduate this year. So hopefully this won't affect her personally. But she says it's really disappointing to think the massive opportunities she's had might disappear at some unis as a COVID era relic. From what I've been talking to people,
1: one girl, she is actually transferring to a different university altogether
7: because she has no option to move. Student Lucio Kill will be affected. She lives close to uni, but she does some external subjects so she can work to be able to afford to live close to uni. My grandparents were sick
1: in my second year of uni, and so being able to enrol in the courses I had to do externally meant I could be in Brisbane and help mum with everything she needed to do, and it definitely takes away that, like, trade-off that I know a lot of internal students have to make about whether you go to work and make enough money to eat well this week or you go to a lecture or a
7: prac and actually pass the subject, so... Grace and Lucy say the news came as a bit of a shock, but a UQ spokesperson said students were told back in January that it would transition back to in-person and discontinue COVID-related adjustments. The uni says it acknowledges this change will be significant for the small number of external students. It says it'll meet with them soon to find an appropriate solution and can offer support like help finding accommodation. But the benefits of returning to in-person teaching include smaller tutorials, field trips and access to facilities. So what if universities across the country start to, quote, return to normal?
6: Yes, the stats do show that people who are studying fully online, more of them drop out And they take longer to finish their degrees, those that stay. But it's not as simple as the study mode.
7: This is Dr. Kathy Stone. She's a Conjoint Associate Professor at the University of Newcastle. And she researches how we can give more people the opportunity to study and improve equity.
6: You know, going to university used to be an elite activity. In some universities, it it kind of still is, but it... You know, we're living in a world now where it
7: isn't and it shouldn't be. She hopes unis across the country really invest in external learning, aside from regional unis that have been doing distance for ages.
6: A lot of these students, they wouldn't be at university at all if they weren't studying online. It's more about the multiple responsibilities and commitments in their lives. We know from all the research that particularly for Students who are first in family to come to university, compounded by um, perhaps low socioeconomic backgrounds, also First Nations students, they're already finding it a massive challenge and right out of their zone of familiarity. If it all gets too hard, they're very likely to think, okay, it wasn't meant for me after all. Dr Stone says universities do
7: have an obligation to improve student equity and remote learning can be a big part of that.
6: I kind of get it because a lot of universities have got some really nice facilities on campus and I think perhaps some of them kind of miss the days of that vibrant sort of student life on campus but I, I think they're harking back to the past and I think we've moved on from there. I did a
1: different degree before I did this one and it, I never finished it, but it was two and a half, three years on campus and it was a completely different story
7: for me. Up in Proserpine, Grace is hoping other rural students keep getting the same shot she did during the pandemic. And Over the last four
1: years, they've built this up to be something that's so sustainable, really. I've had a, an excellent time studying online. I've been able to do so much, so I think I don't see why that can't
0: continue in some shape or form. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that story. Got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, much like those who could work from home during lockdowns, this sounds like an opportunity for some. Surely if we're demanding flexibility from employers, we can demand flexibility from unis too. Nick in Blacktown says, I live in a major city and have been studying online for years. I've gained new skills and qualifications while remaining employed full time. I love the flexibility that online study provides. I want to find out how widespread this is, if universities across the board are winding back those COVID-era online learning practices. If you have been told that you need to get back to campus to finish your degree, what's it going to mean for you? Message in 0439757555. With us now is Professor Michael Senke. He's the president of the Australasian Council on Open Distance and E-Learning. G'day, Michael. Thanks for coming on
4: Hack. Pleasure. Lovely to be here.
0: Are a lot of universities ditching their online practices that were brought in uh, during COVID? Moderating,
4: not necessarily ditching. So we've learned some lessons over COVID that has helped us in terms of conceiving what a new form of blended or hybridised learning is. So we're taking some of the good stuff, getting rid of some of the stuff that's a bit ordinary.
0: It's a bit interesting because we've definitely heard some concerns from students over the past couple of years about their online learning experiences. A lot of people saying it hasn't worked for them, that maybe they don't even feel like they're getting a value for money in that situation. But now we're hearing from some students in the bush who say it's been a lifesaver. It's really helped them out and enabled them to study. Why are universities maybe deciding not to offer some subjects in an online format now? Like, what, what's some of the reasoning behind moving away from that?
4: We're seeing that mostly in what we call the Sandstone Universities, those research intensive universities, where there's this perception that the value add of the classroom is experience is what students want to pay for and get that kind of you know, credibility around. Whereas we've got those distance education institutions that have been around for a long time as well. This is their bread and butter. This is how they, they live and work where it's interesting is what the middle group are doing, those metropolitan universities that aren't the big eight, aren't big distance education institutions, they're the ones kind of negotiating what what is gonna be the best mix to give our students the best opportunity to grab that knowledge and then apply it in different ways. So that's, I think that's, we're gonna see the biggest shift in that middle ground. So you think
0: that the way we're learning now at universities might really change over the next few decades? It might look quite different as we try and find that middle ground?
4: Absolutely. We are seeing a fundamental shift in what would be called the fifth industrial revolution, which is where... We're starting to see the use of internet of things, AI, new cyborg type technologies coming into the whole notion of education. My thing is, how can that be used by us to help our students become more productive? So it's not just about taking knowledge and kind of regurgitating. It's how we take the knowledge that's already out there and start to add value to it.
0: I wanted to ask about AI, actually. Is that having a bit of an impact on maybe universities' decisions to want people back on campus in those classrooms? Because it's easier to cheat now using whether it's chat GPT or other artificial intelligence programs. We've talked about cheating a lot on hack over the past few months, and it does seem to be yeah. a huge issue for unis at the moment.
4: Look, I've just come out of a session where we've had four, we've had four students, four CDU students talking about their use of ChatGPT, and they were very honest about it. how they're using ChatGPT. What they're finding is it's not, it's not living up to the promises that they found that it could do. Yes, it does help them with some general understanding and things like that, but they still are having to go in and actually you know, make sense of it and things like that. Those who are using it, just copying and pasting from ChatGPT or other tools, the lecturers are finding it's not giving them the outputs they want for their assessment. So yes, it is gonna make differences to the way we process information, It's how we as universities engage with that, again, that notion of helping our students be more productive. Yes, it does affect assessment and some universities are saying, no, we're going to go back to -to face-to-face exams. No, we can't can't do anything else but go back to -to face-to-face exams. Well, there are other things we can do and there are lots of things that are being discussed at the moment and being put into place uh, by universities that actually make assessment more authentic, more job-focused rather than just the regurgitation, what it's causing is a fundamental shift to the way we conceive education for our students.
0: If we look at those universities, and maybe it is the big sandstone universities asking people to come back onto campus, does that worry you as someone who is an expert in in distance learning, e-learning, does it worry you that there could be students in the country in rural remote areas who are locked out of studying because they can't move to the city? They either can't afford it or they don't want to?
4: but well, only if they want to study at the Sandstone University. What we're finding is that there are so many more options for these students now. The Sandstones have got a business model that they need to live up to. They've got reputations that they want to live up to and things like that, that's fine. And students will choose those and, and fit into that process. But what we're seeing is a more a democratisation of education uh, for the rest of us. So probably two thirds, we're seeing far more far more democratic way of doing things. Yes, there are ethical concerns we need to consider in this, but that aside, just briefly, we do find that there is the opportunities for students now through these new forms of of engaging with information that universities need to take a hold of and run with.
0: Do you think there really is a change in the way students are viewing these other universities and their online offerings that they're more willing to go to one of the other unis or regional campuses. You know what I mean? Like they're not they're not wedded to going to one of the big Sydney unis or Melbourne unis.
4: Yeah. That's and that's always been the case. It's just being highlighted a bit more now, particularly since the cost of living rises and students have to work so much more and things like that. They've got to make life choices that fit them. Now the the value of a degree is not going away. But what, how they have to fit that into their life is changing.
0: Look, it's definitely really interesting stuff. We appreciate your take on it, Professor Michael Sankey from the Australasian Council on Open Distance and e Learning. Thank you for joining us on Hack. Pleasure indeed. Hack on Trivial Jack, and that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.